Good morning. One of my sons. Good morning. Well, come on, let's all stand. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. It is good to be with you. It's been a minute since I've been out here, right? Yes. About a week or so, two. <laughs> too long, and so much is happening in many, many ways. Praise the Lord. But it's so good to be with you. Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for faith, family, education, and community. These four core values that are the values of our ministry that drive what we do, how we think, how we do ministry, how we create community. Let these things ever be with us and guide us, Lord. Thank you for this family of faith, Christian Cultural Center, Long Island. Thank you for the lives that are represented by those who come and all the lives who will be touched by those who are transformed by this ministry. Thank you for the leadership, Pastor Jamal, Bernard and Rita and all of the staff. Thank you as we witness the continued growth of our family and our work. Bless us today as you have blessed us through worship, praise, prayer, giving, now bless us through the wisdom and instruction of your word. We ask and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Come on, hug three people before you're seated. Bless them in the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I will tell you, it, it was a surreal moment sitting there and watching the county executive come up and interact with Pastor Jamal. You know, it's like reliving CCC Brooklyn all over again. When we started and elected officials started coming and we were introducing and building relationships and here we are again, happening, you know, seeing it happen here in Long Island. It's very, very important that we build these kind of relationships, amen? Praise the Lord. And you talk about today's theme. The month theme is love, and today is about endurance. <laughs> Can we talk? One of the things that I've learned over time uh, is you have to have the ability to adapt and adjust if you're going to be in a relationship long-term. Change is the only constant in life, and especially so in marriage and the relationship of marriage. Things change over time. People change over time. And if you don't grow together, you will grow apart. There is no doubt about it. And you have to be intentional in developing and growing that relationship. And the most... The relationships that have the greatest depth are forged in the crucible of crisis. It's when you go through crisis together and you come out on the other side 
that the relationship is deeper and richer. Amen? And that is the reality of marriage, because you're not really married on the day of the honeymoon. You really married when you have that first argument. How many couples know what I'm talking about here, okay? It's when you have that first conflict, that first disagreement, that first verbal-only altercation. And you decide to stay in the relationship and make it work. Now you are officially married. Everything before that was honeymoon. <laughs> Amen? And it's true in a church. I tell our new members class, I said, you're not really a member of CCC just because you joined today, signed up, and we celebrated you. You actually become a member when you have that first run-in with the parking lot attendant, with an usher, with some staff member, or another congregant. And after that altercation, you decide, I'm going to still stay at this church. Now you are a member of Christian Cultural Center. Are there any members in here? I want to count the altercation. There are variables in life because of the reality of change. Amen? And I said, wow, this is, this is Black History Month, and, you know, we're talking about uh, divine providence as our overall theme for the year as a ministry. And in Brooklyn, I've been talking about divine providence and selecting stories from Scripture and unpacking those stories and demonstrating God's divine providence in those stories. We talked about Abraham and Sarah. We talked about Isaac. We talked about Joseph. Um, we talked about, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, that's right. That was fun about Joseph. And um, today I want to extract another story that speaks of divine providence but the story is providential in that it reaches far beyond the context and the time period into today and what we see happening around us today and even, even what we've experienced over the last century here in America. There's a wonderful passage in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. It's very, very important, Romans chapter 15. And thank you for all of you who've been praying for my healing. How many know that, y'all don't know what happened to me? I've been walking with a cane for four months and y'all don't know? Because mm. I haven't been here? That hurt. So I was in the gym doing squats back in August of last year. And how many know what squats are? Okay. Um, and I got injured, pulled a muscle, it exacerbated a nerve, created inflammation, and in my mind, I'm 25. I mean, I can do a lot of things in my mind, but my body, my body reminded me. We had a hard conversation with each other, and it took some time for that to heal. You know, you heal faster when you're younger than I am young at this time. And as you get older, your body takes a little longer to heal. So I actually had to have a cane to keep me from developing bad habits because your body compensates for injury and you can pick up some bad habits that can stay with you. I didn't realize how serious that was until 
I ran into a friend of mine, Willie Alfonso, who has been for many years the chaplain for the New York Nets and the Yankees, and I think it was with the, the Knicks also, right? The Jets as well. And he was telling me that he had an injury and he didn't let it heal properly. So now it, that it's healed, he's still limping. And I said, well, if it's healed, why are you limping? He said, because in my mind, it's still injured. And I said, well, I've never heard anything like that. He said, I have to go to the doctor and they have to do something with my brain to readjust it so that it will no longer treat my injury as though it's an injury. Now, I've never heard anything like that. It's amazing how the body and the mind can adjust in such a way that it leaves an indelible mark. Now, if that's true of a physical injury, how about an emotional injury? And how we have to be reprogrammed because of scars that are left on us. And that's really what the month of black history is about. It's celebrating and looking back at some of the issues that have taken place to shape American society and to affect the kind of change that was necessary for the society to grow. I want to share a word with you. And first, let's look at that, that passage. I love this. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? We might have what? Hope. Hope. Very, very important. Hope. I don't see how people can live without hope. Right? And to live without God is to live without hope. And the apostle presents this text so that we would look back at the Old Testament not as though it's unrelated to who we are and what we do today, but to draw from it its wisdom and the stories that are there and how God dealt with the people in those stories and what can be learned. So the Old Testament becomes an opportunity for us to look and learn. And those things that were written were written for our patience, for our endurance, so that we might have hope. And that hope is not just for us as Christians. How many know God so loved the world? Wait, y'all got to John 3.16, right? Okay, you're scaring me. God so loved the world, right? God loves the world, all of humanity. There's the Lord, the fullness thereof. God loves the world, all of humanity. And that love and that compassion, all right, emanates from him because God is love. And I will tell you, and this is our, part of our theology of the house, we believe that God is continually calling, pursuing, and wooing every individual into a relationship with him right up until the day that they die. That's our theology. God doesn't give up and quit on you. No. Right up to your very last breath, we believe that God is in pursuit. And that's the difference between Christianity and other religions. Other religions, pursue you pursue God, right? Have a moral standards, etc., and you pursue God. But in Christianity, God pursues us. It's a big difference because God's not lost. We are. Amen. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's the wholeness of Christianity. So these stories are written to help us, to teach us, 
but also for us to apply. And many of them have been applied in interesting ways. I want to share a word with you today. If I, and I don't have to write it on the board. You guys can put it on the screen. I'm going to write it anyway because I'm going to break it down. It's pronounced satyagraha. It's not Spanish. I'm not speaking in tongues. Can you pronounce that? Satyagraha. Try again. Right. It's actually an East Indian word. An East Indian word. Now, this is not the east part of the West Indies. <laughs> this is over in India. Where is that? Is that, is that just past Bahama or what? No. <laughs> the other side of the planet. It is a word that was created by a man named Mahatma Gandhi. How many have ever heard of Gandhi? Okay, good. And it's broken down into two words, actually, actually, satya and agraha. Did I spell it? Are we matching up there? Good. I'm going to make sure. The satya part of it actually means love. It means love. The other part of it, actually, satya literally means truth, but it implies truth in love. Did you ever hear that before? The Bible says, speak the truth in love. So truth and love go together. Amen? And the human heart seeks truth. And the human heart seeks love. We shared that with you in the past. So satya means truth in what? In love. The second part of it, agraha, it, it, it literally means force. but in a way that's tied back to truth and love. Essentially, it all means polite insistence. It essentially means polite insistence. Another word that agraha means is firmness. Firmness. So you have truth, which implies love, which is motivated by love, right? But you also have what? Firmness and force. And together you end up with polite insistence. Gandhi coined this as the foundation for 
non-violent resistance. Of course, that was later, that later evolved to nonviolent action. Because when you think of resistance, you think of it's just you're standing there. All right? Now, how many of you have ever heard the passage of Scripture where Jesus said, turn the other cheek? Right? If someone smacks you on your right cheek. Got it? Turn to him also the other cheek. Now, I will tell you, before I was a Christian and understood that, I read that, and that's one of the reasons I didn't want to be a Christian, because I felt, well, Christians were weak if you go around turning the other cheek. All right? You know, what do you do? You only have two cheeks. Well, at least on your face, but... uh, But you get what I'm saying here, right? Now, let me, let me help you understand this text. Pastor Jamal, can you come up for a moment? If the whole idea of what Jesus was doing, and, and, and you know, people will think if they misunderstand this. <laughs> Luke, I'm your father. Yes. <laughs> So, at a, at a very tertiary reading of that text, you would think that it means allow someone to abuse you. So, when I was younger, I felt Christianity was like being a doormat, you know, this love thing and let everybody walk all over you. But what Jesus was, 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 was actually displaying was nonviolent resistance. Because the idea of someone smacking you, and and remember, the left hand uh, was not the favorable hand culturally. The right hand was. In fact, I went to a, when I was working at the bank, one of the employees that worked for me, his name was uh, Jean Baptiste, and his culture in Haiti, if you were left-handed, he said that they would try to correct that to force you to use your right hand because the left hand had negative implications. So the right hand and the right cheek was critical. So if someone were going to, given the cultural background, if someone were going to smack you on your right cheek, all right, what they're talking about is, and I'll, you just cooperate with me. (laughs) What they were talking about is someone giving you a backhand, using their right hand, right? Giving you a backhand, you know you always wanted to do this, right? Did you get that photo? (laughs) It's someone taking their right hand and smacking your right cheek. That is not meant to injure. It's meant to insult you and put you in your place. You understand what's going on here, what Jesus was talking about? So if you do that to insult me and put me in my place, then my response should be to back away and put my head down. But if after you do that, right, and I go this way and I look at you and I give you my other cheek, I'm resisting. I'm nonviolently resisting. 
And what I'm saying is, you are not superior to me. And I'm not going to strike you back because if I do, I'll become what you are. You understand? So Jesus was not talking about allowing someone to take advantage of you. He was talking about nonviolently resisting any oppression. Because that, remember, the Jews were in a context of oppression under the Roman Empire. Got it? So Jesus was actually engaging in this whole idea of nonviolent resistance. Thank you. That's enough. <laughs> Let's give Pastor Bernard a round of applause and appreciation. Gandhi was exposed to Christianity when he was going to school in England. And he was impressed with Jesus. And when I think about Gandhi's story, I think about my own. Because when I got saved, it was not the institution of Christianity that saved me. It was the person of Christ. The institution confused me. Got it? But the person intrigued me, the person of Jesus. So after I got saved, I went to work to try to understand the institution. I'm still trying to figure it out. But in order to figure out the institution, you have to figure out people. Amen? Amen. So I didn't know until I read about Gandhi that that's exactly where Gandhi was. He rejected Christianity because of what he saw coming from Christians. Especially when he was in South Africa and engaged in peaceful demonstration and protests against apartheid because Indians who lived in South Africa, and when I was there in Cape Town especially, they have a large Indian population predominantly in Cape Town. They were being oppressed by individuals who were supposedly Christian. And they were white Christian leaders. And Gandhi said, well, wait a minute. If Christianity and this Jesus is what it's supposed to be, how can there be this type of oppression, segregation, and racism? Because apartheid is simply a South African version of segregation. So Gandhi was confused. But the person of Jesus and the image of Jesus, he was sold on that. So much so that although he rejected Christianity as an institution, he embraced the ideas of Jesus. And his nonviolent action, all right, especially with the Salt March, which took place in South Africa, was based on the impact that Jesus had on him. So Jesus impacts, impacts Gandhi. Got this? All right? And Gandhi comes up with that term. What's the word? Very good. He comes up with this term to express it. Now, this was in the early 1900s, from 1902 to 1906, that this was going on because the Indian independence movement was about Indians pushing back against British rule. Right? Gandhi became an activist and got involved and ended up in South Africa and pushing back against apartheid. Then there emerged a man who was trying to figure out the best way to address segregation and racism in America. 
And he needed a model. He needed some form that he could look at that would work. His name was Martin Luther King Jr. So he studied the life of Gandhi. And when he studied the life of Gandhi and saw that nonviolent resistance is actually a powerful thing and it emanates through loving your enemies, which is another thing that Gandhi read that Jesus said that influenced him, all right, Martin Luther King took that and that became the foundation for the civil rights movement. Got it? So Jesus impacts a Gandhi who ends up impacting a Martin Luther King. Is God in control of all of this? I tell people, don't ever leave God out of the equation. And the timing is incredible because Dr. King was looking for a model, right? So he got his inspiration from Gandhi. But he didn't get the precedence that he needed from Gandhi. And you know that if you're going to make a case for something, you try to find precedence. Precedence comes from the word precede, right? So you have to find something that happened earlier in history. So if you're going to court and you're fighting a court case, if you could find precedence to win your argument, right, then it becomes a stronger argument. So Dr. King was inspired by Gandhi, but he didn't find precedence in Gandhi. So he had to search. And where he found precedence came out in a letter that he wrote while he was in jail in Birmingham. How many have ever heard of the letter from the Birmingham jail? Okay. So it was August the 3rd, 1963, that Dr. King made a decision to leave Atlanta and go into Birmingham, Alabama, all right, and address the racial issues that were there. He got people, a diversity of people, white, black, Latino, a diversity of people to march. And by a week later, a judge, all right, a circuit court judge, decided that he was going to declare that it was a violation of law for anyone to march, to protest, to have a parade, anything like that. He made sure it was a violation. So he shut it down completely, and you couldn't get a permit, all right? So Dr. King made a decision, we're going to march anyway. So they marched, and what happened? He got arrested, and he was put in a Birmingham jail. And while he was in jail, a group of clergy got together, and they put out a statement against his actions, that he shouldn't be marching, he shouldn't be doing sit-ins, he shouldn't be protesting, he should simply allow time to go by, and things will work themselves out. How many know that doesn't work? So while in the Birmingham jail, Dr. King gathered scraps of paper, because he didn't have, you know, a, a yellow pad. They didn't assign you that. <laughs> he gathered scraps of paper, and he wrote out a letter in response. And in that letter, he explained nonviolent action and explained what it was about and why was it important. It was in that letter that he penned the words, Injustice 
anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It was in that letter. And in that letter, he indicated precedence. He cited a story in the Bible of three individuals who were in an empire. They were a small minority in the empire, but they were in captivity. Essentially, they came in as slaves, and those who were skilled in certain areas were brought in to the administration to work for the administration. And the administration had serious issues. Their issue was pride and vanity. They felt they were the greatest. And the king who was in charge, man name, anybody know? Yeah, I'm talking about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Are you with me? So Dr. King cites that as precedence. And he presents that story. And in his letter, he explains just like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were in a situation where the state wanted them to engage in activity that was in violation of their conscience, thereby the state elevating themselves to a place of absolute authority. They had to make a decision that the law that was established by Nebuchadnezzar, which was, remember he created a, a statue that was 90 feet tall? Now look, why do you create a statue 90 feet tall? Are you trying to make a statement or what? And then you put out a decree for everybody to bow down and worship it? You think a lot of yourself. So he put that out there. So these three young men had to make a decision. And that decision was they were not going to submit to an unjust law. And Dr. King cited that as precedence, saying that segregation and racism in America is based on unjust laws. And there is a higher moral accountability and conscience that we must answer to. And for that reason, he was willing to violate that law but also willing to go to jail. Because when you protest, you must also, in respect to that law, embrace the consequences or penalty that comes along with that protest. And when you do that, you show greater respect for that law that you're violating. So you're saying, I respect the law, I love the law, right? But in this case, this is an unjust law. So he dug deep back into Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and said, this story gives precedence that goes far beyond any recent story that you can pull up. And he used it to craft his, I'm good, thank you. He used it to craft his letter and also to continue to build on the whole movement of nonviolent resistance, and the civil rights movement. Amen? So what I'm saying to you, it was biblically based. It was based in Christianity. That story was one. Another story was the Exodus story. How many read the Exodus? How many got up to that place in the Bible? You got that far? The whole idea of a people in bondage and being delivered from Egypt 
And then songs that came out of that Exodus experience. How many ever heard of Swing Low, Sweet Chariot? Some of the songs were actually sung to send signal to support the Underground Railroad, which simply meant things were clear, movement can take place. See? So what's happening today, and why I share this with you today, is because it happened in the 60s, in the baby boomer generation. That's us. And I bought into it when I didn't know better. And this was the line. Why are you a Christian? Because Christianity is the white man's religion. Can we talk? And I bought into that. Rejected Christianity and went into the nation of Islam. But this Jesus kept pursuing me. Pastor Karen and I were dating in 1971, and we were walking down Flushing Avenue, holding hands, <laughs> so in love, and these two old ladies came walking towards us. They call Pastor Karen, not me, and I didn't know what they said to her until after because I didn't hear. They were a little bit distant from me. They asked her, do you love him? And she said, yes. I don't know if she said it like that, but <laughs> sounds good to me. She said, yes. And then they asked, are you prepared for what God has for him? And she, not knowing what that meant, said, yes. <laughs> and then they said, God bless you. And they left. So she came over to me, and we started walking up the street. And she, she was telling me while we were walking what the conversation was. I said, really? I said, that's crazy. That's strange. Um, let's, go, let's go find out what that was about. We turned around, and the two old ladies were gone. Now... Those old ladies couldn't run that fast. <laughs> it was early morning, not too many people out on the sidewalk. The only thing was down the road was the L train, all right, elevated train. And we knew they didn't run down there, run up those steps that quick. We went looking for them, and we could not find them. We tucked it away and left it there. We put it aside. So that was 71. 72, we got married. In 1973, a year later, her aunt, Pastor Karen's aunt, who is a Methodist minister, was a Methodist minister when she was alive, called and told Pastor Karen, I want to see your husband. I got to pray for him. And I don't want you to come with him. Just send him. Now, she was offended because it was her aunt. And she told me, she said, my aunt, Ciola, wants to see you. I said, what is it about? She said, she just needs to talk to you and pray for you. So out of respect for her, I went to see this Christian woman. And she had an altar. She had an open Bible on it. And 
She said to me, the Lord told me to anoint you. And I was too afraid to ask for what? <laughs> so she said, and I didn't know what anoint. I, I, I had no language. You understand? I had no language. She said, kneel down. So I knelt down. She's in charge. And she put something on my forehead, right? I know now it was anointing oil. And I had a big afro at that time. She took her right hand and put it in the middle of my afro. Now, understand, in order to appreciate the prayer, I had to get through that. Because you just didn't mess with my fro. And she started praying. And she's praying in another language, which I didn't know. I said, well, maybe she speaks another language. I have no idea. And she ended the prayer. And I said, that's it? She said, yeah, that's it. And I left, came back home, and Pastor Karen asked, well, what happened? I told her the story. She said, yeah, I see her hands printed in your afro. <laughs> she said, what do you think it means? I said, I have no idea. And got to understand, because this was during the period that I was still following the Nation of Islam, the black Muslim movement. So that was 73, 1974. I ended up with a secretary that I didn't want. Her name was Daisy Lopez. She was a little Pentecostal woman. Wore no makeup, no jewelry, only the wedding ring she was allowed to wear in her particular faith tradition. She came and she started giving me these little chick tracks. Now, a chick track, if you go back that far, is a little gospel track in comic book form. And they're small like that, so it's easy to just give them out. You can mug a lot of people with those tracks. I did. <laughs> Have you ever done some Christian mugging? Yeah. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to receive Jesus or I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so for that whole year of 1974, she worked for me and would give me these tracks. And I would, I would, I would, because I was cerebral, so I would ask her questions about God, about theology, about the universe and all that. And she was just a simple Pentecostal woman, secretary, and that was it. And finally, her pastor told her, look, stop talking to this man because he's going to confuse you. But she continued to talk to me. And what, what bothered me, what really got me, was not her ability to answer my questions because she, she couldn't. It was her simple childlike faith in this Jesus. How could someone dead have such an impact, such an influence on someone living? And that stuck with me. So she invited me to a meeting where a guy named Nicky Cruz was sharing his testimony, January 11th, 1975, at Baptist Temple, downtown Brooklyn. So Pastor Karen and I went, and we sat there. And that night, Nicky Cruz was preaching. He preached in broken English. So I got some, I missed some. <laughs> and at times he would go into Spanglish. Anybody know what Spanglish is? Okay, good. Pero tu no. <laughs> little Spanish, little English. So, <laughs> that night, 
I was faced with a decision I never felt before. And two things came real to me. Number one, I'm the God that you're looking for. And intuitively, I knew it was Jesus. Number two, I and my word are one. And that was important because now Jesus was extracted out of all the movies and, and pictures that depicted him in different ways. Now he was the scripture. And I had to now deal with this book. And that's where my journey began. I figured, I, I figured I'll figure out the institution of Christianity later. But this person... I've got to figure this guy out and understand how and why he arrested me, arrested my heart the way he did that night. I look back and I look at how that was orchestrated by God. How many understand? It was orchestrated by God. Because of the desegregation program, I was bussed out to white schools from Bedford-Stuyvesant. I was bussed out to Queens to go to school. They were trying to desegregate. I continued to go to school there. They were desegregating. I was making friends, building relationships, and understanding both the white context of growth and my own context of growth in Bed-Stuy and in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And we developed close relationship. One of my best friends, Eddie Russi. Boy, could his Italian family cook. <laughs> so not only were we going to school together, we were spending time with each other on weekends. So I was exposed to this whole other world, which gave me a balanced perception of life and the issues that are both in both communities. See, that's why at the end of the day, we're all in the same boat. Politics, all this stuff tries to divide us, but we're all in the same boat. Amen? And I learned that early, and that's why I, I rejected the Nation of Islam's doctrine that the white man was a devil. I couldn't embrace that, all right, because I knew some devils that were, came in colors. So, I asked you if we can talk. So by going to that school and being part of that program, Pastor Karen, at the same time, she and her family is given an opportunity to go to a junior high school also in this other community. So they lied and gave a false address. <laughs> this was BC. <laughs> what does BC mean? Thank you. So, you get on with my story here. So she ended up going to a junior high school that was linked to the same high school that I would be going to. We ended up meeting in that high school. She would be in the auditorium during a particular period. I would sit in the auditorium. I'd just stare at her. Got her attention. She started staring back. Never spoke to each other up to that point. So now, a friend of mine who's the center for our basketball, because I played city youth organization basketball, CYO ball, and um, in, 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 through a Methodist church, and we're walking down this particular development. She lived in Bushwick Projects, Pastor Karen. And my friend says to me, he says, I know a young lady 
And right about now, four o'clock, she's cooking. I said to him, is that a free meal? In those days, every penny counted. So he said, yeah. So let's go try it out. So we went up to this young lady's house, and sure enough, when we got inside, she was cooking. I was introduced. We sat down. We're talking. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door. The key goes in. The door opens, and in walks Pastor Karen. She looks at me. She says, what are you doing here? I said, what are you doing here? How do you understand what I'm talking about? So, you know, we had conversation the next day in school. But as I look back, I could see how step by step, God is orchestrating through his divine providence the outcomes that he chooses. In spite, and his genius is in his ability to still accomplish his will and purpose in spite of the decisions that we make. And how many know we can make decisions that are contrary to God? Decisions that will lead us in an opposite direction. But God knows how to take all of that, bring it together. So here we have a story of these three Hebrew boys, God knowing that at some time in the future, someone who would make a great impact and change American society would be reaching back to that story to give them hope, to give them a precedence that they can create a movement that would transform an entire nation and eventually transform the world. Every place in this world knows the phrase, I have a dream. They know that speech. Divine providence is God providing for, guiding, sustaining, all of his creation, but especially those who've surrendered their heart and their mind to him. I pray that when you leave today, you'll start to look at your life in a different way and begin to see the hand of God and how certain things happened the way they did. And I'm telling you, it was not coincidental. As a kid, I would go from Bushwick, Brooklyn to Brownsville just to go and swim in Betsy Head Pool. Anybody know about Betsy Head Pool in Brownsville? Some of you did. Some of you swam there. Not knowing that eventually we'd be opening a church in East New York. But God allowed me to touch a place that was part of my destiny. And I realized that these are some of the things that he does. When we played CYO ball, we would play against a school that was in the community where our church in Brooklyn is. If we lost, we walked home. We stopped and got something to eat. If we won, we ran home <laughs> to get out of the community as quickly as possible. But I did not know that that was part of my destiny, that God was allowing me to touch people, places, things, events 
as you look back in your life, God was setting it up step by step, piece by piece, moment by moment. How many believe in divine providence? Whether it's on a macro scale of God dealing with injustice and raising up individuals like a Dr. King, or whether it's on an individual scale in your personal life. You say, well, God, I could see God concerned about a Dr. Martin Luther King, but me, Jesus put it this way, the very hairs on your head are numbered. And your heavenly father knows even if a sparrow, one sparrow, falls from the sky and hits the ground, every detail counts and nobody's life is insignificant. That's why when you read in the Bible, you ever read in the Bible where it says, and this one begat that one, who begat that one, who begat, and there are two chapters of begats. And usually we tend to skip over because we can't even pronounce the names of those who are doing the begatting. <laughs> but their names were there for a reason. Even though the only mention is they begat, it was still that important that God placed it in his book. And our lives are that important that God placed it in his book. And your life is that important that God placed you in this church to grow, to learn, to develop, to become all that he's designed you to be with the right information and the right guidance. Amen? Amen. Did you get a word today? Come on, let's all stand. I will tell you, as I look out at this congregation and I look out at what God's doing here, you represent the future of this country. You really do, and the future of the world. It's a diversity of people coming together. Unity in diversity. And that's the message of Jesus Christ. We don't grow in isolation, we grow in community. And it's in community that you discover your gifts, your talents, your abilities, and most importantly, your purpose. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Here it is, over 2,000 years later, and the stories that you preserved in writing for us are being used to effect change, transform lives, transform societies thousands of years later. Wow. Yes, Lord, Christianity is your gift to the world. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for this truth, this way. Thank you for this life. Thank you for seeing each of us the way you designed us. And that is stamped, indelibly marked with the image of God. And that's what gives us our value, our worth, our self-esteem, our sense of identity. We love you today, and we pray that your blessing, your anointing will continue to be on this congregation, this leadership. Use us as ambassadors of your love, your life, and your light. Continue to open our eyes that we might see your divine hand 
every day, moving things around, using circumstances, situations, in order to achieve your purpose in our lives. We bless you and we thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Come on, slap high five with three people. Tell them I got that word today. Amen, family. How are we doing? That was that a good word? Come on. You ready, church? My father's here. We got to make him. We got to look good, all right? <laughs> this Bible is our primary source of faith. This Bible is our rule of conduct. This Bible creates the lens that we see life through. As we leave this place, we never God's presence. Jesus is Lord, period. We believe it, we proclaim it, and we're seeing it come to pass.